Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com, the online megastore that offers Earth's biggest selection. If you're going to buy stuff on Amazon anyway, it would be cool if you could first click on the link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page. And Amazon will kick a few bucks back to the Rocktail Hour to help fund the free podcast. In today's podcast, Dave is going to bring us the story behind One by Metallica. Before I go into One by Metallica, I need to preface this and maybe offer an apology to the Rocktail Hour listener that requested a Metallica song, but they requested Enter Sandman. <laughs> yeah. And I need I feel compelled to explain why I didn't pick Enter Sandman. Uh, I'm a huge... Because it's dumb? <laughs> <laughs> come on, that's a great song. Oh, Enter Sandman. Well, we'll talk about it. Oh, come on. We'll talk about it. I mean, it. seriously, it's 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 almost like a self-parody. Yes. Okay, so... It's not dumb. It is a great song, but it, you don't want to pay too close attention to the lyrics because they're almost laughable. We're going to get into that, and I'm going right, to tell you a little, an anecdote on that uh, of why I didn't pick Enter Sandman. Okay. Um, sorry to, to whoever requested that. I do like the song. It's the <laughs> ringtone on my phone. Is it really? Uh-huh. What a dumb ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I'm a huge Metallica fan ever since kind of the mid-80s um, fan. But really, my my appreciation of the band does begin to wane with the Black Album. And then thereafter, I kind of go up and down with them. Um, are you guys Metallica fans? I am, yeah. Right. I love the Black Album. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, their first four albums were outstanding. I think the Black Album was their fifth, and we'll talk about that one. But for, in my opinion, Metallica's showmanship, their musicality, their lyrics, the just raw energy and drive of their musical style really resonated with me when I was a kid. And uh, I also kind of gravitated toward them because Metallica came onto the scene somewhat at the same time and against a backdrop of big hair, dudes wearing makeup, spandex, the glam <laughs> rock scene. Mm-hmm. And here were these young kids playing faster, harder, more raw than anybody. And they were wearing ripped jeans and uh, misfit shirts. And they were kind of semi-punk and new thrash metal. And they were just raw and off the street. Didn't they intentionally try to save rock and roll from the glam rock? That's what I'd heard. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And thank Meta- heavens they did. And they did. And well, it, well, here's the interesting thing, right? Because really, the corporatization of rock and roll, in my opinion, really began in the '80s, uh, where you had MTV come on the scene, mm-hmm. and you had the record labels wielding a ton of power, and you had them fighting the PMRC and all these different, you know, big factions coming together. Um, and Metallica was the band that kind of said, hey, no gimmicks here. We're straight. We're raw. We're going to punch you in the face with our music. And here's who we are. And that, to me, is what resonated. That's what resonated to me with, with music, with their music. One quote that James Hetfield said in you know, one of those heavy metal magazines that I used to read when I was a kid was something along, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, he said, the minute this band loses touch with the street, it's done. 
In other words, they understood very clearly that what they were doing was not the corporate glam rock formula thing. They were writing, you know, garage band type music for real people. Cool. Right. And that was their whole approach. So the Black Album was their fifth studio album. And while, in my opinion, it was really good in a lot, and in fact, commercially, it was their most successful album. In my opinion, it was when they actually did begin to lose a little bit of that connection that they had with, quote unquote, the street. Well, that's always the real dichotomy, right? You know, as an as artists and as free thinkers, you know, these rock and rollers think, well, I'm never going to sell out. Well, at some point you have to realize that if if I don't sell out, then I never make any money. And if I don't make any money and, and then I'm never going to be famous. And that's really what everybody wants to be. Yep. Right. So at some point they turn a corner, they all turn a corner and become sellouts. And it's just a matter of whether or not you still like them as a sellout. That's right. And I can't remember what the band was, but they said, you know, people accuse us all the time of selling out. And yeah, we sell out. We sell out every single night we play. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But, you know, I think bands have a tendency to mirror Animal Farm in that sense, right? They're fighting against the system, and that's the message of their music, and they get big enough, and they're successful enough to where they become the system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was one of the things that, as Metallic entered into the Black Album phase, really, in my opinion, kind of started to happen to them. I remember one video that I saw, and it wasn't a music video, it was just, you know, a clip of of something, and it was a rock star dressing kind of tighter jeans, kind of all in black with long hair and a cowboy hat on coming off of a Learjet. Or just walking off of a Learjet. And I looked at him like, oh, that's Brett Michaels from Poison. This is like in the 80s. And then he kind of flips his hair back, and I see, and it's Hetfield. <laughs> and at that moment, and this was at the time of the Black Album, I'm like, I just confused James Hetfield with <laughs> Brett Michaels. What is What kind of alternate universe did I just descend into, that's right? That's funny. And so, it could you know, have been the Allman Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the Allmans, they're Southern Rock. They get to wear cowboy right, Okay, okay. They have license. Um, and so, in fact, speaking about the Black Album, here's a, a funny little anecdote. When I was in high school, I had two friends that I used to go hang out with, and we'd drive around to go to parties and stuff on the weekend. And one guy was Evan Lundstedt, another guy was Archie LaVista. Cool guys, friends of mine. And these guys were metalheads that had long, straight hair down to, you know, kind of their chest. And they, we would drive around, and they would just bang their heads, and I thought they looked cool. And my parents wouldn't let me grow my hair out all over, but they would let me grow it out in the back, so I ended up with a mullet trying to bang my mullet around, which was really sad. <laughs> but anyway, they always said, you know, we're so proud of Metallica, like, so proud to be Metallica fans, you will never hear Metallica, a Metallica song that has the word baby in it. <laughs> and lo and behold, when Enter Sandman came out, they had to eat their words, because there's that line that says, hush, little baby, don't say That's right. <laughs> and they said, dang it. <laughs> So anyway, I think Metallica... Okay, well, you've, you've brought that up now, so we're going to have to address that. Address away. That is the dumbest chorus of a song ever. I'm sorry. Is right. the music great? Absolutely. It is. Do they rock? Yes. The bass Are line in that's terrific. Absolutely. I am not, for one moment, saying that that, that song isn't just a tight, great song, but... But when they start singing, hush, little baby, don't say it, it's, it's almost like I'm watching another version of Spinal Tap. You got it. You know, and I'm, and I'm like, 
Oh, did they intentionally do that to get laughs? Because, you know, there were people that I knew that listened to that song that just thought that was awesome. And I mean, that's why Beavis and Butthead was so funny in the first place. Is because people like Beavis and Butthead thought that was the coolest thing ever, man. Right. right. You know, <laughs> and it was just so incredibly stupid. As a, died in, as a died in the wool Metallica fan, I would love to argue with you if I could, but on that one, I yeah. would concede the point entirely. It's it's self-parody. It is, and it's unfortunate. What Metallica did with the Black Album, and this was consciously, and there again, they're trying to evolve as a band too. You can you know sell out in the in the, with a guise of evolving, but um, anyway, what they did is they shortened a lot of their song lengths, made them less complex from a um, an arrangement perspective. Huh. So if you look at their first four albums, you had averages of six to eight minute songs with these really complex musical arrangements and all these different things going on. And then here you had all these radio-worthy hits that came off, and they made videos for all of them. And so we're going to talk about one here in a second. One was Metallica's first music video, and at that point in time, it was seen even, and one is off the Justice for All album, which is it was the fourth song on that album. It was seen by a lot of their diehard fans as selling out the fact that they did a video for it. And there was actually wow. a lot of controversy at the time saying, what are you doing selling out and putting out a video to the corporate interests that are MTV. In my opinion, MTV was kind of the American idol of the 80s. You know, so like the true raw, rugged music fans didn't like it. Here Mm -hmm. you had a bunch of suits in an office deciding what was popular, right? So anyway, um, and again, I don't know if MTV wore suits, but you get the picture. (laughs) So anyway, we can go... Back when MTV was cool, by the way. Back when MTV actually had anything to do with music. Music, yeah. Right, so anyway... Um, I wanted to go back and kind of pay tribute to Metallica by doing something that I thought was a little more quintessentially Metallica. And I went through a lot. I actually debated a lot. I was going to do Master Puppets. I thought of Creeping Death and Fade to Black and Seek and Destroy. And there's all these great classic Metallica songs. But because um, of the story behind one, I decided to choose that one that I think will tell the story pretty well about kind of who they are and the type of subject matter that drove their music and um, on top of that, I think the Justice for All album is musically kind of where they hit their apex. Um, Kirk Hammett is phenomenal on guitars in that. And I saw their last tour, their last tour stop on the Justice for All tour in Irvine Meadows in 1991. Wow. And man, I'll tell you, there I've never been to a concert before or since that packed that much energy and um, just raw you know, aggression into an entire stadium. Wow. It was palpable how much power was in that in that album. That's cool. And man, they are a phenomenal live band, especially then when it was their heyday. Again, we mentioned that it was their first video and the video was shot in Long Beach, California, and it's in this dark warehouse and it's shot mostly in black and white. And it's kind of cool artistically because it's interspersed with scenes from a movie that was released, I believe, in 1971 called Johnny Got His Gun. And that movie was inspired by a book by the same name that was released in 19 or published in 1938. Okay, and it was an anti-war book and an anti-war movie. And so the song, again, was inspired by this movie. So we're going to talk about what the movie was and how it plays into the song. And so throughout the entire video, you have the music and the, the music video and the clips of the movie going like this. And you're hearing dialogue from the movie and how that interrelates with some of the dialogue going on in the song. So let's talk about Johnny Got His Gun. 
for the listeners, when Dave says going like this, he's sort of weaving his hands in and out, <laughs> just so that we can, you know, provide that visual for you. My apologies, podcast <laughs> listeners. I'm, this isn't a video cast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got faces for the radio. That's why. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I'm learning that. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry. I'm so stupid. It's going like this. <laughs> oh, stupid. Okay, so. <laughs> so, Johnny Got His Gun. Let's talk about the book and the movie, and I'll just kind of talk about them as if they're one and the same. Timothy Bottoms. There you go. You know this. Have you seen the movie? Mm-hmm. All right. So it's based on an anti-war book, again, that was published in 1938. Um, and it was the name of the movie and the book, Johnny Got His Gun, is actually a play on words. Um, in the U.S. military in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, to, as part of their recruiting efforts for the war, especially World War I, they would use this phrase, Johnny, get your gun. In other words, hey, come sign up and be a patriot and be a part of the military. And so this docu- this book was supposed to document the horrors of war, and it said, so the name of the book was Johnny Got His Gun. Mm-hmm. Here's what happens after Johnny Got His Gun. And the story chronicles, um, <laughs> I want to say Jason Bonham, but it's not. I think it's Joe Bonham is the protagonist or the character in the book. And he's a soldier in World War I, very patriotic, goes to war, and an artillery shell hits him and his company, kills a lot of people, and for him, it blows off his arms, it blows off his legs, and it destroys his face. Wow. So he's rendered blind, deaf, and his tongue is gone, and his teeth are gone, and so he can't communicate, he can't hear, he can't see, but his mind is left perfectly intact. And so they take this poor soldier in this pitiful condition, they hook him up to a tracheotomy, and they're you know keeping him alive, and he's, and he's recovering, he's going to be able to still live, but the quality of life that he has is he's basically trapped in his body, hence the name of the song, One, All Alone Trapped in My Body. Wow. Right? And so the story, Tim, you, you said you mentioned you've seen the movie. Have you read the book? I have not read the book. Okay, but you've seen the movie. Long, long time ago. Right. And so the movie, I don't. I saw it when I was, you know, a teenager, and so I don't remember it as much. I saw it mainly because when this video came out, it piqued my interest. So I can't necessarily recommend the movie, but it's uh, a certainly a, a, a sad and poignant tale. I don't know how well it's told, um, just because I haven't seen it in a while. But what ends up happening is they, the doctors and nurses are gathering around him, and he's kind of fading in and out of consciousness going back and having all these recollections of his childhood and what that was like and what that means to him now. And if you can put yourself in his position, you can see how there's a very, how consciousness and reality are very blurred for him. He doesn't, I mean, when he falls asleep and he wakes up, he can't hear anything. He can't see anything. He doesn't know what he, what's happening in reality. So it's kind of like this vague gray area where a lot of the movie takes place and the doctors and nurses are trying to figure out what to do with him. And he tries to kill himself because he's so miserable by suffocating himself, but he can't because the tracheotomy is in there and he can't, you know, stop himself from breathing. Wow. One of the nurses has pity on him and she actually tries to squeeze the, the tube that's feeding him air uh, right when her supervisor doctor comes in the room and stops her from doing it. And he was sitting there saying, thank you, nurse. Thank you, nurse. So what ends up happening is he, and I'm kind of telling the story out of order actually, but he ends up kind of banging his head and tapping his head against the pillow. 
and the doctors and nurses are trying to figure out what it is, and they finally realize this is Morse code. He's communicating with us through Morse code. And what he's saying over and over again is, kill me, kill me, kill me. Wow. Right? And so, again, it exposes the horrors and the effects of war. And um, so you look at that kind of dark that dark story and that backdrop, that's the kind of stuff that Metallica gravitated towards in terms of inspiration for their songs. And so the song starts off with um, kind of 17 seconds of, in the background, sounds of war. And then you hear this kind of lone guitar come out, and um, it's actually a great way to learn guitar because it's really simple to play and it sounds cool. But it kind of has this slow, melodic beginning and then slowly builds as the lyrics get darker and darker into traditional Metallica heavy rocking and it ends with this frenetic blistering section where ironically Hetfield said he didn't mean to do this but his guitar sounds like a machine gun and if you listen to one you'll know what I'm talking about Um, but he said that was just kind of the riff that he wrote and um, a couple of lyrics that are interesting that'll now kind of flesh out their inspiration for the movie is he starts out singing I can't remember anything can't tell if this is true or dream Deep down inside, I feel the scream. This terrible silence stops in me. Now that the war is through with me, I'm waking up. I cannot see that there's not much left of me. Nothing is real but pain now. And so he goes on and talks about, hold my breath as I wish for death. Please, God, wake me. But he can't wake up. And so the the story ends in the movie and in the book that the military does not grant his wish to die. And and the camera kind of pans out, as I remember. And he's just sitting there stuck all by himself for the rest of his life. It's really a dark and, yeah, and, and a sad tale, but it's an anti-war message that they're trying to send, right? Um, and it ends. the song ends with Kirk Hammett just shining on this kind of guitar-tapping um, solo and, again, this really frenetic and fast-paced um, instrumental jam session that they have. And one has been one of their live staples. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any live show that Metallica has done since that album came out where they don't play one. It's just kind of one of their staples. And the one thing that I noticed, I saw their uh, Death Magnetic tour at the LA Forum, uh, what was that, a couple of years ago? And they finished playing one, and James Hetfield, the crowd's going absolutely bananas, and James Hetfield comes up and he's like, you guys like that one? And I could tell just by the way, I can't remember what he said, but just by the tone of his voice, those guys, after all these years of playing that song, they still have a blast because it has so much raw energy and it is just such a cranking yeah. song that you can tell they get a lot of pleasure out of that. And I was like, man, what a great deal. That's cool. So anyway, that's Metallica's one great song and uh, certainly a great band, a top, uh, a top band for me. Definitely. Well, thanks, Dave. You can listen to a clip from one on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudesatrocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting Rocktail Hour of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, as always, please keep that to yourself. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and rate us on iTunes. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>